today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The sentencing of Dellen Millard's third case in the death this time in the death of his father is uh, uh, the sentencing is. Uh, well, anyway, he has uh, been convicted again. To bring us up to date on all of this, Alex Pearson is with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, and on the line now. Alex, how are you? Hello. hello. I'm so glad it's Friday. I know. I hear glad. you. It has been a busy, busy week for all of the reasons you state above. It, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's mm. bring us up to date on the Delano Lard scenario and the uh, case involving the death of his father, murder of his father. The... the um Sentencing hearing is ongoing now. The Crown and defense have been going through their list of why he should go to jail for a third sentence of 25 years life sentence and why the defense feels that he shouldn't. And I think um, the Crown did a good job this morning. I mean, there's no question he deserves another 25 years. He's already got 50 years for killing Kim Bosma as well as Laura Babcock, but his father was killed by him as well because, don't forget, Wayne Millard fueled his life. He was his meal ticket. And yep. when the meal ticket became, you know, uh, a threat to his partying ways, he decided to get rid of dear old dad. And so the judge will, to de- you know, be deciding today whether or not Dellen gets another 25 years or maybe he will just say, all right, you got 50 years. We'll just let you serve this one concurrent. But I strongly hope and I strongly feel that the judge in this case will, in fact, throw another 25 years. And while the defense had argued, well, that's not fair because – He'll be 102 by then. He'll be dead. To which I said, "Perfect." Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's the whole idea. You know, perfect. that's the whole idea behind consecutive sentences, right? I mean, is that if there isn't, uh, if if Della Millard is an example of someone who would receive a consecutive sentence, who is? Exactly. He is not rehabilitatable. I don't care if he's ever rehabilitated. I don't care if he spends the rest of his life rotting under, uh, mm. you know, in his eight by eight cell. And I don't think too many other people. Um, unless they're delusional, would disagree with me. This is not a person who ever deserves to be rehabilitated. This is not someone who will ever end up in a healing lodge. This is someone in Canadian history who is a serial killer, but also the nature of his crimes are unique because it was done for the thrill. So these are thrill kills. And it's not like there was a fight, a reaction, and someone got killed. This was just for the hell of it. Yeah. So it, it takes it to a different kind of level. So the judge will decide uh, probably in the next couple of hours uh, whether, what direction um, that they're going in. But I, I highly suspect that it will be an additional 25 years. Which basically means there's no chance of parole, no, no nothing, they've thrown away the key. No, which, which goes to what we've been speaking about for the last you know, four or five weeks in you know, at what point do the families, do the Bosmas, yeah. do the Babcocks, do, to the Millards themselves, Wayne's side of the family, deserve some kind of justice? Because for justice to be done, it has to be seen to have been done. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about, you know, why would we have to worry about a guy like Paul Bernardo getting it? Why, you know, why do, does it matter? I mean, Paul Bernardo... But the family does still in, feel inclined they have to represent themselves every time they, he decides to go up for parole. And I mean, that's exactly why this law was put in place. 100. Well, it was, yes, um, because in Canada, when people get a life sentence, it's not really life. There's always conditions mm-hmm. to it. And so you get these people who, out of no fault of their own, become a product of the system, yeah. um, like the Bosmas or the Babcocks, 
and their whole life is destroyed. And then it becomes a game of, okay, how do we keep them there? How do we keep the justice going? And yeah. So for a guy like Della Millard, 75 years is more than, uh, you know, I have no problem with doing 100 years. But this is the just sentence, given the gravity of his crime. People like Carrie Lynn McClintock, people like Paul Bernardo, they are not rehabilitatable. You know, that is someone like Elizabeth Watlaufer is already in a minimum security two years in after killing eight people. This is you know, the conversation we've been having. So I, I think it's timely that we will see the sentence. Obviously, coming. you covered this case. You were in the courtroom there with the with the Bosma family. How do you think they're mm-hmm. feeling at this point? How do you think all these families are feeling? Well, I, I certainly hope that they've had a chance to distance themselves um, from, from what has been going on. I mean, the Bosmas have been very, very supportive of the Bosma army as we came to know them. Yeah. And, you know, they're a very strong, unified, uh, one of the, you know, possibly the most lovely family I've ever met. Um, and they've been extremely supportive to the Babcock family. They did not go today, but they have stood by, stood up, and really, as you know, given back um, and tried to make their horror a, a little easier for other victims of crime. So that's where I think they focus their works. But uh, certainly, I think at this point, they would probably want to move on. They've had their say. They've um, you know, there's nothing more that they can add or even need to add on this. You know, if it weren't, um, if the sentencing had gone a different way, uh, there'd be a little probably more outrage. But again, for them, I hope it gives them the peace. I think for the Babcock, it's probably still a little bit more raw. But yeah. after today, Scott, really, Dylan Millard goes away. Other yeah. than yeah. the appeal process, which I don't think is going to amount to anything. But today, finally, you get the third, you know, the the, the triple sentence puts this case to bed, and Dellen Millard can go away to oblivion. What does it say about the uh, police investigation that this was all missed? And, of course, you know, yeah. if it had been caught, would you know, these people still be alive? All of this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, you know, especially when you think of the, the MacArthur case and the Sherman mm-hmm. case, I mean, this doesn't look good on Toronto police, does it? No, um, it doesn't. And there has been an awful lot of chatter, certainly, you know, kind of quietly behind the scenes of what went wrong. How could this have happened? How were so many things missed? Because if you compare the cases of Bosma versus Laura Babcock, Bosma, the, the, the police handling of Bosma was almost meticulous. The Hamilton police were so active and so fast that they were able to kind of put the pieces in. And really, that was the beginning of the end of Dell and Millard. Whereas in Toronto, when it came to Laura Babcock, when it came, like, had the police taken the Laura Babcock story more seriously, when her boyfriend at the time had gone to them saying, you got to look at this guy, Dell and Millard, my girlfriend friend has gone missing. You know, they just didn't act. And I get it. They don't have the resources to look for every grown adult who goes missing. But there were enough red flags Scott, but by that case, that when Wayne Millard was found dead, that they should have known, okay, hold on a second. Um, this guy's just been killed. We've got this missing woman in, in Toronto that someone's been talking about. I'm just saying they should have, yeah. I think, been a little bit um, better in their investigation before ruling it so quickly as the suicide. So is this it for now? Will he? Is it, will this be it for uh, for Millard? Is he? He'll probably appeal this just because he can. Well, he will because he can, and it's generally yeah. automatic. Yeah. But you know, will this be the end? I don't know. You know, he is. You know, it's all about him. He's a narcissist. He's yeah. a psychopath. So he'll he'll do something. Either write a book or, you know, he's probably playing kingpin in jail. You know, teaching everybody the knowledge of of. of you know, Dellen Millard. I mean, who knows what he does in there? He probably thinks pretty highly of himself. So will we hear about him again? 
Probably, but it'll be like the Paul Bernard situations where you find out he's got a girlfriend or he's got married or something. I mean, um, you know, just... Is he in with the... Will he be in with the regular prison population or is he in a seclusion like Bernardo? Nope, Nope. he is in general population um, at this point. That will be interesting. Yeah, um, well, it's interesting because Wayne Millard, don't forget, the estate was tied up. Like, yeah. what happens to that estate? That estate does not go to Dellen Millard now. So the power that he had in paying people off, and, right. you know, really, because that was his power, was the money that his father gave him. That way he could get all his little minions, all those little losers to follow him around. That was Dellen Millard's shtick. He was such a loser himself that he had to pay for people to play with him. And that was really the lust <laughs> of Dellen Millard, was that he had the money to pay for the party, and they all willingly did yeah. it. So when that was threatened by Dad, Dad had to go. So he doesn't have that money now in jail. So he might not get quite the favors that he was before. Uh, and no sign of the mother through any of this? No, she was not in attendance. She never has. But as I understand, you know, she's still very supportive and loving of her son. Bizarre. Which is, oh. which is well, you know, I, I spoke with Luca Magnata. I know. We played know? a portion of like, Yeah, we played a portion of your interview there the next day. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and it's, hard to, it's hard to be empathetic to them. I get it. I mean, especially Della Millard's mom, because... You know, she was, she was so, I don't want to say instrumental in being a part of it, but certainly in actions that were taken, you know, from the wiping of the fingerprints, yeah. from the, the letters getting in and out of jail. Certainly mommy was either blindly, blindly, blindly naive or just very, uh, you know. But the point is, she's never been seen. She's been a very big part of the story, kind of as an enabler. Um, but we have never seen her, but she is still very much a presence in Dylan's life. All right. I can't let you go without asking you uh, about the case involving St. Oh. Mike's and what's going oh. on there. What's this like, <laughs> and, and how is this story gripping Toronto? It's not a Toronto story. This speaks to every yeah, Canadian yeah. school, high school. This is such a massive story, Scott, and the more I hear about it, the angrier I get. I did a lot of my show on this last night because it speaks to a culture that exists that is either enabled, it's been given a blind eye. We're talking about, Scott, a a failure on the school's part. There's so many fingers of blame on this thing, and so you're going to see the story get really bad, uh, big. This was known apparently last Thursday that this had happened. Mm -hmm. This was online Thursday. On Monday, the headmaster of that school was alerted to an incident, and as soon as that happens, Scott, his job is to call the police. Yeah. You know, that's just basic, basic mm. of his job. And he didn't. He asked for some advice on how to handle a certain situation. But then it became knowledgeable to Global News. We had obtained a tape that had been circulating around high schools in Toronto, passed around, laughed at. It came to our knowledge. And when the reporter called the principal, he kind of pr- brushed it off. This was Wednesday afternoon. And she said, I've seen the tape. And that's when all of a sudden Hmm. the students were taken into an assembly. And then after the parents were told an incident had happened and then the police are notified. And within minutes, Scott, the police put out a news bulletin saying there is a tape out there. There's video of these kids. Get it off. They were very active. But the police had no idea until the media took it to them to say this is what we're hearing. And, and, And why this is so awful amongst any other thing is what those boys suffered and how many days were left where that tape could circulate, the gossip could go, those boys' faces on those tapes, and the violation. I cannot emphasize Mm. how horrific what was done 
to especially one of those boys. You know, I had Retea Parsons' dad on last night, Scott, and it is heartbreaking. Hmm. Even what he went through, the fights for changes in laws and cyberbullying, yeah. you know, that in 2018, the teachers, the school, the students, no one thought to say this is wrong. It has to be reported. It just looks like the school was trying to make it go away. And in doing so, Scott, the damage that has been done to those boys and that those families, I can't even imagine. I can't even you, imagine. You know, like you said, this is uh, this is disgusting on so many mm-hmm. different levels. It's not a hazing. It's um, an out and out rape. And, and 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 that's the point that I was getting to is yep. how does it get from that to this? How does that happen? How and and how and, 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 and 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 beyond beyond the, the administration in the school and I, and I'm certainly not. But but how do how do the kids? get mm-hmm. to that point how did well, again question. especially especially considering you know again retea parsons mm-hmm. uh, uh carol todd mm-hmm. uh, i've had you know those parents on and and they're mm-hmm. the, the, you know how how can the kids stand by and think that this is acceptable right like so, where does oh, that oh, culture come from it. there's a and that's a whole other side of the story is that this pack mentality which can be very contagious you know and the adrenaline goes and i'm not giving them a pass but you got this group of boys involved in this the excitement yada yada it's funny ha 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 but then someone stepped away from that and decided okay let's put this online so there was no apparent sober second thought kicking into yeah. okay we're, we're doing something really bad and no one no one who received the video, no one who, you know, knew about, no one went. It's almost like the Dellen Millard. Yeah. Everyone knew there was a problem and no one went to the authorities or to save or protect those boys. No one is learning. And this is not about sex ed. This is not about the curriculum. This is about basic decency as human beings. Wrong is wrong. And you know, at 17, you know, putting a broomstick, you know, where that yeah. is a, that is a crime. And you know that you don't need to be taught that that is safe. Yeah. That's so, beyond that. There's a, there's, there's a sickness there. There's something. Oh, going, yeah. Beyond. Um, and so this case is going to be very big. We're going to learn more today about the school. They're having meetings. Um, if heads don't roll, Scott, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a lot of charges. There's going to be a lot of, I think. Well, here's the other thing over yeah. and above this issue. Yeah. How, yeah. how, how far does this go? How many victims oh. are there? Well, exactly. Well, again, it, it depends how, how many people saw that tape. That's why this case, I think, becomes one of those national. This becomes a case point, almost like like Retea Parsons. It's just escalated. How many people saw that tape? How many of those kids then become chargeable offenders because they took part in the distribution yeah. of child porn? Yeah. That's yeah. why this story is so big. If it happens in Toronto, it's happening in Kitchener. It's happening in Hamilton. This story is a wake up call. Uh, like none I've ever seen. And for school officials, you know, I'm thinking, Scott, this kind of thing comes to my, even the breath of it comes my way, I'm saying yeah. I'm calling the cops because you just don't want to take any chances. What's the, what would have been so bad had that principal overreacted? Nothing. But he yeah. underreacted, and the story is 20 times worse. And like you said, at, at yeah. what point does it go from a hazing to a criminal act to someone? I mean, my goodness, if that doesn't, what does? Uh, you know. Yeah, and, and I don't want people to be lost in the, in the language on this. While it's being called like a hazing, this goes far, far, yeah. far yeah. beyond, you know, the... You know, cutting it's a, a sexual assault. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. beyond, yeah. beyond. All right, Alex Pearson has been with us. Make sure you're watching tonight and uh, across the uh, Global Ontario Radio Network. Glo- uh, Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. Have a Take good one. Take care. Thanks. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Bruce McDonald, Imagine Canada, an organization that exists to work alongside charitable organizations and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Tell us about Imagine Canada. What do you do? Well, we're a national registered charity, and what we seek to do is make sure that there's a great operating environment so that charities, nonprofits, social enterprises, those who really want to help communities can thrive. So this is sort of a liaison between uh, the charity and the people? Well, the people, business, and government, absolutely. So what are your thoughts when you hear stories like this? Well, it's hard because I, I think at the, the core of the offering for most charitable and nonprofit organizations is trust. And when there are stories where trust is broken, even though charities weren't involved in this, uh, I, I think sometimes they get affected by it. So these are hard stories to hear. Well, you know, in the old days, it seemed we all had our favorite charity and they were large organizations and, 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 and well um, administered, we thought. And now with the Internet and online, we can virtually do all of this ourselves. Does this go back to the old advice, you know, go with what you know? I mean, uh, are, are people going to forget about these sort of independent kind of little fundraisers and just stick to what they know, whether it's, you know, a cancer society, heart and stroke, that sort of thing? Well, I, I don't think that donations need to just go to large organizations, but I, I do think that people need to, to really think, uh, about where their where their giving is going, because one of the interesting sort of things with the rise of of crowdfunding is the paradox that that our our society is now in. So you have charities who are under unprecedented scrutiny to you know account for every dollar that's that's contributed, and people don't like terms like cost of administration or cost of fundraising, and yet the very act of giving to someone on a crowdfunding platform feels much the same as giving to a charitable organization, but there's absolutely no checks and balances in place to make sure that those are going. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the benefits of the charitable construct. And you think this sort of platform must be just right for this sort of thing, because we're hearing all the time about terrible tragedy and how people have come and responded and, and, and helped these families and such out. Um, where do we go from here? How do we know? How do we know it's legit? What do we do? Well, if it's on a crowdfunding site, you basically don't. Um, because anybody can go and, and throw up a page and say, this is my cause, or this is what's happened to me or one of my family members. And effectively, if you want to give to that, you are trusting that that individual um, is telling the truth. And I mean, I think for the most part, people are. But I think because there are no checks and balances, there's no boards of directors or oversight for any of this, uh, it is likely more open for these kinds of stories than if you are going on to a crowd funding platform and giving to a registered charity because it has those mechanisms in place to make sure that your dollars are going for the purpose that you intended. Are you surprised this sort of thing is going on? Because again, like I mentioned earlier, this has to be right for this sort of thing. I mean, it's amazing how much money they can generate in a very short period of time with an incredibly sim- uh, you know, a simple story. Uh, yeah. You know, you see the way these scams operate, a little homework, you're off and running. Yeah. Am I surprised? No, not really. I've, I've been kind of, in a sense, sort of waiting for them because I think that unfortunately when these opportunities arise that there are going to be people that have sort of 
less than truthful intentions that will try and exploit the system. I do believe, though, however, that those are uh, you know, really the minority. But what it's also done is it's, it's created a, a mechanism for the charitable sector to respond. So one of the things that we had imagined Canada do is we actually accredit charities. So we have a program that uh, organizations go through that, you know, there's 73 standards in five different areas, and, and we really credit them for the highest levels of good governance, transparent accountability, because we want Canadians to know that organizations are doing everything possible to continue to deserve that trust. What about the pages themselves, the people that operate GoFundMe and such? Do they have a responsibility here, or are they just providing the platform? It's up, for you, it's up to you to, you, you to police it. Yeah, I think at this point, the, the way it's working is that very much they're providing the platform. And it is growing rapidly. And so whether they end up with an oversight uh, role, I'm not entirely sure where that might go. I think a lot of it will depend on, are these stories still the minority, or do they really start to surface more and more? I think if they do, uh, there may be some pressure to take more action. What about when there's various uh, pages that come up for one cause? We saw this with the uh, Humboldt uh, tragedy out in Saskatchewan where, you know, somebody was upset because this, you know, a page was being set up for this and didn't have the official uh, blessing of someone else. How do you control who's running these and even if it's for the same cause? Well, I, I think you don't control. Because these are open platforms, anybody can go and even with the best of intentions or maybe not the best of intentions, can set these things up. I think this is really where it's incumbent on, upon people who want to give to spend a few minutes and do their homework. Go and look, is this page uh, affiliated with an organization or, or with someone reputable on the cause? Or even more, is it is it affiliated with a registered organization? Because then there is some checks and balances in place. I think if, if Canadians just simply want to sort of close their eyes and give, then there's likely going to be more of these hmm. uh, these situations. You know, but it is important that more and more we don't have these stories because again, I, I kind of go back to this point about trust. Trust is at the heart of generosity for organizations. We're heading into a very important time of the year for most Canadian charities. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, these kinds of stories erode trust a bit. And that's not good for organizations at this time of the year. In a situation like this, I mean, and again, through social media, you're just hearing about a story. It's not like there's a police report. It's not like there is a, a, a news story. It just kind of starts organically by itself. Uh, I guess that should raise red flags, no? Well, I I mean, again, I think it goes back to being an informed consumer, but the hard part, too, is that the national, international media is dominated by one bad story. And what we're not hearing is all Mm -hmm. the great stories, whether they're crowdfunding, have uh, have been supported through crowdfunding platforms, or whether they're organizations doing their day-to-day work in communities. Those are harder stories to get out. And yet they are as impactful as, as these sort of more negative slanted stories. So how do you think people who, as you said, close their eyes and give, how do they react to a story like this? Does it, does it discourage them, do you think? Or do they, ah, you know, bad person, they'll burn in hell for that? Because you know, it is one of those crimes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think likely at this point, it's probably still more, uh, you know what, this is a one-off. 
I think what we need to watch for is do these one-offs become more regular? Because if they are, then I think people really need to think about doing their homework a little bit more. And um, I hate to say it, be more guarded with their giving so that they feel good that the dollars that they've contributed are actually helping people and, and not being used for other purposes. Why do you think these sorts of stories resonate more than a charity? What, what, what motivates people to you know, stop reading about this and actually give? Well, I think these kinds of stories resonate more because they can do it outside of the normal safeguards that charitable organizations have in place that prevent this kind of, of behavior. Um, and, and so, you know, anybody can go and throw up a page and they might have uh, whipped up a story. They may be genuine. Um, and even if it is a genuine story, you don't know that if you contributed dollars, did they use it for the purpose that they put up on the page or did they use it for something else? That is a significant difference about giving either via a crowdfunding platform or just online or in any form to a registered charity. They have those, um, those mechanisms in place to make sure that you feel good as a donor, as a contributor, that your dollars are being used for that particular purpose or cause. How do they, how do they find this sort of thing? How do they investigate this? How, do they, how does this go from uh, working to not working for, this, for these criminals? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think in this case there was dissatisfaction by, I mean, my early reading was that there was dissatisfaction amongst the three parties that cooked it up. Someone that broke down. Brought, yeah. brought, brought uh, you know, light to it, which I, had that not happened, we likely would not know. Unbelievable. Uh, Bruce McDonald has been with us. Imagine Canada, an organization that exists to work alongside charitable organizations. Bruce, thanks for the type of, uh, time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is, we, we certainly know the story of uh, John Lennon and, and how he lost his life and Mark David Chapman, uh, probably one of the famous, most famous murderers there is simply because of, of who he shot uh, way back when, December 8th, 1980. And, and every year, uh, or every couple of years, I guess, uh, Mark David Chapman comes up for parole and he is denied. Apparently it's different this year because he says, at least in Rolling Stone, I know what shame is now. He's understood, he understands what it is that he has done. What makes this different? Does this still have the impact? Does this name still have the impact uh, that it once did? Let's bring in Eric Elper, publicist, music commentary, content creator, and shameless idealist. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Oh, no. Always happy to be here. I'll, I'll actually add one more thing to your, to your snow thing. Yeah. Whenever the media said that this is the first snowfall of the year, it's not. It snowed back in January. That's a good point. <laughs> Oh but man! But and that, and those were big ones. Those were really big. All right. <laughs> I understand. There you go. There you go. That. Yeah. All right. did, did this story kind of blow you away a little bit? What's different this time? What's different this time? Because this is like the tenth time yeah. I think he's he's been at, he's asked for parole. So what's different now? Well, you know, just for for those people who who aren't aware, every time that Mark David Chapman comes up for parole. Um, it's not so much anymore of a punishment for them to keep him in jail. Actually, quite a bit of times, especially this year, um, the judges have told him and the media that they actually fear for 
Mark's life and that they're they're keeping him in jail for his security as opposed to being a danger to society. It's kind of like they're saying that society actually might be a danger to him. And So he's you know, not getting out until the last Beatles fan has passed away? Um, I think that, you know what, I think more and more as as we get into, um, you know, I think it's a gun control story. I think it's also yeah, a, good point. A, it, it's a social media angle with, you know, people wanting to become famous for doing something ridiculous, like jumping off of bridges and filming it. All it would take is for, you know, somebody to have the idea of payback. Yeah. Get it on video, and the next thing you know, this is what we're going to be talking about over the next month. But, so take you know, us back. Take us back to December mm-hmm. of, of 1980. Tell everybody who may not remember how this day unfolded and, and yeah, just the so, bizarre uh, timeline of events. Yeah. So Mark David Chapman was a huge Beatles fan. In fact, he often thought of himself as as one of them. He often dreamed about what it would be like to actually be a Beatle, and his favorite Beatle was John Lennon, and for for years he dressed like them and wanted to be a guitarist just like John. In fact, he after John Lennon married Yoko Ono, he actually wanted to find someone who looked like Yoko Ono to marry. And in fact, he did. Um, somewhere along the line of the mid 1970s, Mark David Chapman started to have hallucinations and psychotic um, uh, moments in his life where he was hearing voices in his head. There were two books that stood out in the 1970s for Mark David Chapman. One of them was a book about the Beatles, and the other one was The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And he, Mark David Chapman, said that he related to the, that character of Holden Caulfield of being away from society, being a menace to society, not being able to connect with other people. And he started to become schizophrenic. He started to become um, having bouts of paranoia. And he told not only his best friend, but his wife at the time, that he was actually going to kill John Lennon because he felt that John Lennon had betrayed not just his ideals, but all of our ideals. He became a house husband in the 70s. He left music. He started printing out albums not worthy of of critical attention. He just felt like he had been ripped off and that John Lennon was the biggest phony on the planet. And Hmm. only he, Mark David Chapman, should kill him and end all of our sufferings on behalf of us. And uh, he waited outside uh, the Dakota apartment in New York City on December the 8th, 1980, got uh, an autograph from John Lennon on the Double Fantasy album, waited there, until he came back from the studio again. And uh, John Lennon took a look at him and said, what are you looking at? And Mark David Chapman shot him several times in the back. How bizarre, too, that he gets, the, he gets what would be the last autograph. Yeah, it was up, it was up for sale. Um, it was on eBay a number of years ago. Um, but eBay took it down after um, a, a huge backlash um, hmm. of that. And that it was, you know, the album still has John Lennon's blood on it. And I guess it was, you know, one of those collector item things. Uh-huh. But um, not sure who has it now. Probably, I would think, somebody in the police department of Yoko. But, yeah, you know, immediately, you know, Mark David Chapman was sent to jail. There was no doubt that he was the one who did. In fact, he didn't even run away. He was actually captured seconds afterwards, just basically in front of the body and realized what he had done. So now, after all this time, I think whether it's the drugs, whether it's the therapy, whether it's time, Mm. he is kind of fessing up to, to the severity of what he's done. And to that, I say, too bad. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, that being said, there are key things to rehabilitation, key things to say or, or goals you have to meet in order to get there. That being said, it doesn't matter either way for this man just because of who the victim was. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's, a, that's a rough road to go on. And yeah, it is. You of all people who deal with opinions and arguments all day long, you don't you know that the world isn't black and white. Yeah. You know it's, it's a whole lot of gray when it comes to marking decisions for everybody to live by. Um, does John Lennon's life mean more in the penitentiary system um, than some unknown person, innocent bystander off the street? It kind of does, and I hate to say that, but you know when you, when you shoot and attempt murder and kill president or a prime minister or a police officer it means something more to all of us that the the punishments should be more severe when you have somebody like john lennon who you know back in 1980 was and still one of the most recognizable popular people on the planet um get killed i think you have to put him up there with uh, you know the regular rules just simply do not apply you go to jail for as long as we can put you behind it's interesting, too, he realizes that uh, he will be infamous even after he dies. Will people remember that name even after, you know, the generation that was part of the Beatles moves on? Yeah, I, I think so, because I think as long as those books are being written about the Beatles, and I think the Beatles have at least 50 more years worth of popularity in them, uh, and that's not to say that they're, you know, going to be insignificant, but, you know, uh, there's been... You know, just uh, every generation, it just seems less and less that the Beatles are getting Google um, looks and yeah. things like that, mm. um, because there's, that's just the way the world works. We don't talk about the music from the 1920s back in 1970 no. like we do now. But I think, you know, as time goes on, Mark David Chapman's name will be in every single Beatles book, every single Beatles documentary. As much as, you know, there's a great deal of people who don't want to give popularity or even mention um, the names of people who kill other people, especially when it comes to gun violence. Uh, why do we remember the person who shot somebody rather than, say, you know, the people in a club or people on the street? I get that, and I sympathize with that. But I think that it's really important to understand a little bit of Mark David Chapman's story, if not just to figure out about the whole psychotic analysis that various psychiatrists and psychologists have done over the number of years with somebody like that and how we can actually treat them a lot better. What's Yoko Ono's take on this? She was reasonably sympathetic towards this guy, was she not? Um, Well, she appeared on, um, I think, on pretty much every single parole hearing. She doesn't appear in person, but she does write a letter to the right people, and then that gets released to the media um, so she's not statement. supportive of him. Or she's it? not supportive of him. Uh, um, but I think, you know... Maybe I th- heard that she had forgiven him or something that... Uh, I can't remember what it was, but that she had some know, sympathy, it, but not the case, I guess. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if she forgave him for what he had done, but not forgiven the act. Yeah, yeah. Um, she seems to be that kind of a person. I, I obviously don't want to put yeah. you know, a- any words into her mouth, but I, I, she seems... Um, I, I think after a while, you just start to say, you know, 
hate might be too much of a word and everybody has right. to move on, it, it, even if you're, you know, now the widower for, for the next, you know, 40, 50, 60 years of the rest of your natural life. What was the Jodie Foster angle? Oh, that was, uh, that was, uh, what's his name? David from who shot Ronald Reagan. Uh, oh, that David was it. I'm confused. Yeah. So it's not, sorry. I'm thinking about two, two, two separate oh, things. Oh, yeah. Okay. Jody, uh, actually. Yeah. She, she, um, yeah, with, with David, he wanted to impress Jody Foster and Jody Foster kind of forgave him afterwards for that. All right. Um, but, yeah. I'm getting my story screwed up here. Yeah, uh, that's okay. So, but, I mean, you know, like, it's a really interesting thing. Like, you know, when, when you, when you talk about somebody like, you know, like David who shot Reagan or Charles Manson, you end up with just this, this, um, the symbol of evil of everything that you can possibly not want in a human being. Mm. And it's an interesting question of how long you, how long you have to be in prison for, you know, because life doesn't really mean life, not at least in this country sometimes, you know, so you end up with, with a medical issue, you end up with a, a mind issue, you end right. up with just a violent physical issue of it all. So it's, it's, it's an interesting one for sure, you know, cause Mark, if Mark David Chapman passed all the tests and he was of healthy mind and healthy body, uh, there might be a couple of people one day who will mm. say, "You know what? I think you're ready to come out." Yeah, and you know what? I don't think I don't think you can use the excuse that we're keeping you in for your own safety too for too long. <laughs> Although that is a very valid point for sure. Yeah, um, I'm sure if they had their way, they would send him on a plane somewhere to some secluded place. Yeah. I mean. Not that I'm comparing them, but we do that with former criminals of child molestation, yeah. and they go back in society. I'm 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 not surprised that he's still in there. This just kind of irked me though, because I don't think I really need to hear what he has to say now. Hmm. I think that's all. That's part of it as well. Is that you know while we all don't want to put the emphasis on the person who did the crime rather than remember the person that the crime happened to, every year it always seems that we hear from him when it's like don't really care what you have to say at this point anymore. Uh, I'm going to be a bit cynical here. Um, <laughs> obviously, I, I'm, well, I'm watching uh, the tube the other night, and there's uh, an advertisement for the remastered White Album. Mm. Does this all fall into line as PR for a new album? No. What it does is that it, it, it reminds us um, that Christmas is coming around the corner. <laughs> uh, you you don't your... think the timing here, you, you know? Uh, you know, if you hey, if we can that, get if we can get another article in Rolling Stone about the Beatles just before Christmas when the album drops. Yeah, let's do one more interview with Paul McCartney and figure out what we may not know about you know four yeah. guys. But realistically, if you go through their release dates on Wikipedia, it's amazing because everything for the group after 1964 happened in September, October, and November, and. Uh, them releasing, you know, it's a pretty phenomenal box set with the White Album where you have a lot of demo sessions, you have a lot of unheard material, and all this does is it sets up next year when they are going to be releasing a box set for Abbey Road. And then let it be, and then I don't know what you do after that, because you're kind of going through this, the studio stuff. But yes, it's Christmas time, and that just means another Beatles box set. How much? How many times can we remaster this stuff? I mean, it was only recorded on Ford tracks, wasn't it? A lot of it. How do we, how do we keep making it sound fresh? And I guess technology just makes the Beatles sound better every year? 
How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's um, just when you think that you can't get any better in terms of sound quality, there's just a new way that comes down that we don't even know about that comes out like two years down the road that they're working on right now. I, I, what, what I think is really funny is that, you know, record players are selling more now this mm, year yeah. than they have done in 25 years, but everybody's still pretty much listening to music on crappy computer speakers or, or speakers <laughs> that are, you know, coming with their, with their record player. And meanwhile, they're remastering, remixing, redoing everything to make it sound better, but we're still listening to it on our little buds on our iPhones. Good point. All right, I can't let you go without asking you about biopics and uh, the, your thought. Have you seen the Queen biopic yet? Yeah, I have. I saw it. Uh, I saw it two weeks ago. I thought it was great. So your thoughts? Yeah, you, you, what's really cool about it is is that it's definitely a movie that I think people should go see in the theaters rather than yeah. um, you know at home on the TV by yourself or with somebody else. I think it's it's just got that concert experience and what this is going to do. It's going to tell Hollywood that people love watching stories and music all over again. And we see it now with Bohemian Rhapsody. We've seen it with the star, uh, with the stars born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Look for everybody else to come on the bandwagon because now is this the new concert show. experience? Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's almost like screen by screen and, and scene by scene, what Queen was able to do during parts of Live Aid, for instance, which are just astounding. And I think that's what people want. They want that concert experience without having to spend $750 on a ticket. Uh, they say that it doesn't go right through to the end of uh, Freddie's life. Is that coming eventually? No, I think that this is going to be it. Um, I, I think, you know, when, when veteran and heritage artists take a look at their royalty checks and they see that CD sales are dropping to almost nothing for them now and music streaming services aren't making up what they used to make back in 15 or 20 years ago, they're going to be looking at two things, autobiographies, and they're going to be looking at biopics on the film world and now that almost everybody has kind of written their story in a printed form uh look for a lot of films to be based on like the beatles or bob dylan or joan baez or chuck berry all over again you know we were always joking because when we talk a lot of the time it's because of a it's a passing of a classic rocker of some sort and we always think well what happens after you know this this generation of uh, of artists past and it's like there's the answer right there biopics this and holograms. Man. Yeah, it's I know crazy. that was yeah. When is the Beatles hologram coming? They'll never do that. You don't think and so? I, I know for I know on very good authority that they were actually one of the first people to be asked about this the, by the company that did the Roy Orbison one and they did the Tupac and the Michael Jackson one, but they really wanted the Beatles. Um, it, they are nowhere near even thinking about contemplating something like this. There's something about missing that band that is worth more to the Beatles than ever before. Do you think that'll change once Ringo and Paul pass? Um, I don't know. We should probably call Julian and find out to see how much his bank account is right now. <laughs> What's he doing? Uh, he's still recording and writing. He's still out there and touring, and Sean uh, Ono Lennon is still out there as well. But, you know, it, it, this, this whole hologram experience is kind of bringing up a really cool, cool avenue for for ideas though because you know we all know that there are various members and various teams of the harlem globe charters playing around the world and we know that you know uh 
they're not the original members of the Temptations or the yeah. Four Tops that are yeah. out there in Vegas. Why not have that hologram experience? I, I think it's a really, really cool idea. There's a number of ours I would love to, to see them one more time in that kind of uh, in that kind of an atmosphere. All right, coming soon. Uh, Eric Alpers with us, music publicist, commentator, and content creator, and of course, shameless idealist, which is why he dreams the way he does. Uh, Eric, <laughs> thank you so much for your time as always. Have a great weekend. You too, man. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.